Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, joined by Madeline Davies, our Deputy News and Features Editor. This week we're talking about President Donald Trump, one year since he was elected to the White House. Madeline's been speaking to principals of theological colleges about the funding crisis. And I talked to the Reverend Dr Philip Lockley about how theological colleges can promote good disagreement. Madeline, let's talk about this cover feature you've written. You've been speaking to American Christians about Donald Trump, both those um, who are are fans and who are vehemently opposed to him. Yeah, so I wanted to um, look back over the past year um, and really explore the fact that um, at the same time as um, Christians enabled, in a sense, Trump to win the election, particularly white evangelicals, uh, where I think 81% supported him, and contrast that with the fact that many Christians have been on the front line of what they would describe as the resistance to his presidency, um, particularly the um, Anglican Church in the United States, the Episcopal Church, um, regular updates that we get from them on ways in which they are challenging and opposing some of the edicts coming from the White House. So an an example of that in September, um, 125 Episcopalian bishops um, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times. Um, They were asking the president not to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Act, otherwise known as the Act Protecting the Dreamers. This was to protect um, the deportation of um, the children of undocumented immigrants. That move from the White House has attracted a lot of criticism from religious groups um, and the bishops um, in the Episcopalian Church, um, really strong critics. Interestingly, um, when I looked at the Evangelical Advisory Board, um, which works with Donald Trump, um, there was an example of um, one of the Hispanic members of that group um, suggesting that actually having Christians on that board had managed to um, slightly soften the president's position um, on that act. So there is this idea that while there's pressure for them to resign from the group in protest, that perhaps um, having the ear of the president and the extent to which that's true is very much debated, um, can actually improve policy, um, make it more Christian. Did you get a sense from talking to people that the Trump presidency, for those who opposed him, had been as as bad as they feared? Uh, All of the people who'd been concerned this time last year um, basically said he's he's done what he, um, you know, set out to do. Um, They've described it as a very frightening time for America, um, but really um, no sense that actually it had been better than, than feared. And similarly, the people who voted for or supported Trump have said, um, you know, not much has surprised or disappointed them. Um, So there is a sense that um, the way he was on the campaign path, he's just continued in that vein. Did you speak to any evangelicals who who oppose Trump rather than support him? Um, Some people might say, well, the Episcopal Church, that's kind of obvious that as a left-leaning liberal church, they'd... Yeah. I mean, I think it's notable that even during the campaign, you had very prominent evangelicals speaking out against Trump. So really notably, um, Dr. Russell Moore, um, Mm. who's on the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the um, Southern Baptist Convention, Mm. um, even took to Twitter um, to engage with Trump, quoting from scripture. Um, And there's been some um, sort of open letters and op-eds written in the American press by evangelicals who are really concerned really by um, how evangelicals' relationship with the White House could damage the evangelical brand, I guess, or even perceptions of Christianity in the States. Um, So although there are obviously um, 
evangelical leaders who are very much associated with the White House, um, often leaders of mega churches or um, people with big media brands. Mm. Um, it's not true to say that there haven't been any evangelical critics. And where do the Democrats feature in all of this? Is there a sense that they will be able to court the religious vote once again, or the evangelical vote? Um, well, something I'd like to look at um, in future, which I have um, covered in the past a bit, um, is the work of people like Michael Weir, um, who was a faith advisor to Barack Obama. He's been very critical um, of what he sees as the Democrats' failure to engage with the religious voters. A suggestion that they've um, kind of ceded the ground, in a sense, to the Republicans. Um, and you know, despite the fact that um, actually Hillary Clinton um, grew up in the Methodist Church, um, still goes to the Methodist Church, has talked to an extent about her faith, um, she was perhaps um, not regarded, particularly by swing voters, as um, sort of a Christian candidate. Well, what role does race play in all this? I mean, a lot of the supporters, um, the evangelical supporters for Trump were, were white evangelicals, is that right? So one of the really interesting contributions to the feature came from the Reverend Dr Esau Macaulay, um, who's a professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Northeastern Seminary um, in New York. He um, talked a bit about how it's important to clarify that it was white evangelicals who voted for Trump, um, and that there's been a kind of conflation, this idea that um, you know Christians, evangelicals support Trump. That is to really um, overlook the fact that many black and Hispanic Christians um, mm. voted otherwise, and actually feel in a sense that their white fellow Christians um, have put, put their support um, for Trump at the expense of um, minority rights. Um, and the well-being of, of people of colour. Dr McCauley says in the piece, um, many people in the US equate the church with certain forms of white evangelicalism, leading many people to believe Christians care little about social justice. This might make evangelism and discipleship more difficult in the coming years. Yeah, and um, I was reading sort of some of the press um, around this time last year where... Um, people were pointing out with some sort of frustration that actually um, Christians and evangelicals of colour had been raising the alarm about Donald Trump for some time and perhaps it took other people um, slightly longer to catch up with that and, and that their voices had to an extent sort of been um, marginalised or sidelined. Of course on Sunday there was the um, terrible events in Sutherland Springs in Texas which Hattie writes about in this week's paper at the um, Southern Baptist Church. Um, and I think that's another example of where um, Christians in the United States are quite divided. Um, you've got um, Robert Jeffers, who is one of the members of Trump's Evangelical Advisory Board, who runs a huge church in Dallas, um, pointing out that many of his congregation actually bring guns to church and a suggestion that perhaps that is the solution to the problem. And on the other side, um, these Episcopalian bishops, um, who for some time have been campaigning for gun control, um, giving a very different message. We've also got um, a really good comment piece by Dr Harriet Baber, um, who's a professor at a university in San Diego, um, really reflecting as an American on um, the great gulf, as she puts it, um, between um, Republicans and Democrats. Madeline, you report this week that the people responsible for training the next generation of Anglican clergy, that's the principles of theological colleges and courses, um, have expressed some real worries about the funding of the system and, and some saying that it's in crisis. Could you tell us more? Yes, so a few weeks ago, um, one of these principals got in touch with me um, and expressed concern about funding and said um, that basically, without exaggeration, the sector was in crisis. Um, I then sort of wanted to see to what extent that perception is shared by other principals um, in residential colleges as well as in, on some of the other courses. 
And generally, um, people did share the view that there is a funding problem. Um, this is partly to do with the fact that um, colleges are sort of paid per ordinand who comes to train. Um, so your finances very much depend from year to year on how many um, come to you how many get through the BAP, um, how many choose or are sent to your particular institution. Um, there's also the question of how much is allocated per ordinand. Um, and one of the principals suggested that um, because of underfunding, he was actually subsidising every ordinand by about £500 a year. Um, so just a question of whether what's um, coming from the diocese um, is actually sufficient to cover the costs of training, which, as several of them pointed out, is an expensive business. So it's very difficult if they can't predict each year exactly how many students. I mean, one of the principles tells you we operate on a very small margin. Three students fewer, we're tearing our garments a couple over and we're dancing for joy. That, that's quite a stressful existence. Yes, and, um, you know, there, there were suggestions from principals that um, a different model um, could be put forward, perhaps a more sort of guarantees to of income, which would allow them to plan ahead. Um, there were some that were also sort of critical of the fact that they were competing for ordinands um, and a sort of a cr- critique of what they saw as this sort of um, market-driven um, com- competitive sector. So um, at least one of them sort of said, I'm, you know, I'm spending time I'm having to market um, our training. Is that really the best use of my time when actually I want to concentrate on training the next generation of priests for mission, for evangelism? Um, and so, so questions really about the model itself. What would be a solution to that? Because it would it be for the diocese to tell ordinands where they have to train? I mean, you're going to have a market to some extent when there's a choice. I think um, one of the suggestions that was put forward um, is could um, the Archbishop's Council or, or, or the church as an institution um, provide sort of um, a baseline of funding for TEIs um, if we had this idea that we do need a certain number of them and that they do need to be dispersed throughout the regions, um, then does that require some kind of central commitment um, beyond this um, sort of scheme that's reliant on, on how many come to you? And you've put some of these concerns to the ministry division. What, what did they say? Um, yes, so the, the reply that we got from the ministry division um, was that they did monitor the financial situation of colleges um, and that staff could discuss difficulties. Um, they said that none of the principals had informed them um, that there was a particular problem. Um, they sort of admitted that um, they are vulnerable to changes in the number of students, um, but said that the fees um, were reviewed annually. Um, there's also a bit of a pushback in this idea that the cost of training is met from giving in parishes and so there's a need to provide value for money. Um, and I think principals are aware of the fact that, um, yes, you know, TEIs like other parts of the church are reliant on giving from parishes. Um, that in itself is sort of not a guaranteed income stream and, and probably will be affected as, as numbers change within the church and particularly looking at some of the demographics there. Just say we published on our website the full statements that you receive from the, the principals. Yeah, I'm sure the principals will be keen for people to read their um, sort of full statements, um, which go into a lot more detail um, about the picture for them individually. Clearly, this is something many of them have felt was very important to speak out about. So it's good that we could voice those concerns.
Yeah, and I think um, start something a conversation, hopefully, with our readers. Um, I was really interested in some comments um, that were made from the principal of St Augustine's College, um, the Reverend Dr Alan Gregory, where he felt that there was perhaps not a sense in parishes that they really understood what it is that um, theological um, training does. There wasn't um, a sort of a connection um, with the one that was in their region or um, a sort of a grasp of how the people that then come to minister them um, were trained somewhere and that training is important. So um, kind of a desire to start a conversation, which I think um, the principals acknowledge they need to participate in, in um, really um, growing appreciation of, of what, what it is that they do. Any other parts of the paper that stood out to you this week? Yeah, I think Tim's done um, a good job of looking into um, some of the reports, really concerning reports of um, sexual abuse within the church. Um, really some reports coming from women, um, some of them anonymous, um, about their experiences um, and why it's been difficult to come forward or um, get some kind of um, resolution. People will be um, aware that um, a General Synod member, Jane Ozan, was on um, Channel 4 um, speaking about her own experience um, and Tim has sort of begun to um, ask questions um, about the extent to which her experiences are mirrored elsewhere. I'd just like to alert listeners to the um, Bloxham Literary Festival, which has as a full-page advert in this week's issue. It's the Literary Festival with a theological slant, which is organised by the Church Times. Uh, it takes place uh, 16th to the 18th of February. Um, lots of great speakers, so do check out the website. BloxhamFaithInLiterature.co.uk In our comment pages this week, the Reverend Dr Philip Lockley, the Assistant Curate of St Clement's Oxford, argues that ordination training offers an unparalleled opportunity to learn the meaning of mutual flourishing. I spoke to him. Philip, your article argues that theological colleges should be places where mutual flourishing and good disagreement are learnt. Could you explain what these terms mean and why they're important? Sure, Ed. Uh, So mutual flourishing is a phrase that's uh, been made familiar by its use in the five guiding principles. So that's a document that came out of the agreement enabling the Church of England to consecrate women bishops. And essentially, it recognises that there are those who remain within I guess the spectrum, the tradition of Anglicanism, they don't really feel able to receive the ministry of women, uh, bishops or priests. And so the Church of England um, commits to enabling them still to flourish uh, so they won't be sidelined, if you will. Uh, But mutual flourishing is taken to mean that commitment to flourishing is two way. uh, We want a church where all flourish regardless of their theological conviction on uh, women's ministry. And so both ends of the spectrum, if you like, and maybe everyone in the middle uh, can go forward together and grow the church uh, together. So but good disagreement or disagreeing well uh, is a phrase that's associated particularly with Archbishop Justin Welby. And he's used it in a variety of contexts where uh, he's dealing with conflict, uh, perhaps in his past from before he was archbishop, but now conflict, uh, particularly in the church. And that's about improving the quality of disagreement. So in a sense of uh, listening and learning from the other side and not just um, battling on um, specific issues, uh, but trying to uh, deepen an understanding of where the other side is coming from. And that disagreement doesn't just 
work towards, say, a fudge of agreement, but it's a more honest way of living together, really, despite disagreement. Uh, why is this important? Um, because this is what we commit to as Anglicans and as Christians, uh, to be together, to abide together in Christ, uh, despite our differences. And so theological colleges, um, I think, have a role in forming ordained leaders for our church. And that formation, seems to me, uh, should reflect the kind of church we're wanting to be. You talk about your experience um, training for ordination recently at Cranmer Hall in Durham. Could you say a bit more about that and whether mutual flourishing and good disagreement were encouraged there or enabled? Well, I guess my reflection on uh, mutual flourishing and good disagreement um, doesn't much doesn't so much come from my experience at Cranmer, but my reflections on the wider shape of ordination training and setting that against my experience at Cranmer, if that if that makes sense. Um, so Cranmer is a full time residential training context but training for ordination in the church is going through substantial significant change at the moment there's full-time residential training that's perhaps the traditional form of training uh and then there's residential training i guess particularly associated with uh some college uh and different outposts of that uh, and then there are also these part-time regional courses Cranmer is one of the institutions um that's in that mix and the this process of renewal and reform that the church is going through, um, that's giving more power to dioceses to decide how they want to train their ordinance. Uh, and there are new courses and new training pathways coming along, um, and they are particularly going down the route of, um, or dioceses are particularly wanting to encourage seemingly uh, non-residential training, uh, St. Melitus, um, that, that form of training where you go to college for a day a week and the rest of your time is actually spent in parish in a parish context on the ground um, learning mission and ministry there and then you have a period in college where theology and you bring your theology to relate to that mission and ministry and that's kind of the trendsetter the non-residential training is growing all of this is in response to the need desire for an increasing number of clergy to train the next 10 years uh, to replace those, those a large proportion of clergy are going to retire um, in a decade or so. And the Church of England is looking at these range of different forms of training and dioceses seem particularly to be encouraging um, the non-residential training. And I guess the question I've wanted to reflect on um, after my experience at Cranmer, which was a residential community um, dealing with diversity, there was uh, people from a range of backgrounds and a range of views, conservative evangelical to uh, traditionalist Anglo-Catholic central churchmanship uh, in the middle. That was a community that was finding ways of dealing with diversity. And I noted that the places where that uh, good disagreement, the disagreeing well, places where um, we as a community of ordinands, I feel, learnt what mutual flourishing might be those places those spaces and times were not actually i, I don't think they're necessarily available in the in a non-residential context so they're neither the place in parish placement in parish nor necessarily the lectures which seem to be the two prongs the two what's, what's offered 
in non-residential training. But they're in this third area, this uh, more communal area, this space and time spent together and forming community. I guess I want to raise, I'm raising the question of whether the the space and the time that I experienced at Cranmer for our, our learning, I, I felt to disagree well, whether that is reproducible. Yes, whether that space or that time is available, given the pressures of, of the timetable, effectively, that you with non-residential training. So if you have one day um, a week, uh, which is and, and very much focused on um, learning in lectures, and of course there's socialising, there's, there's friendship, it's getting to know each other. But I noted, actually, perhaps to my surprise, that lectures where you might be sharing your theological view on um, a whole range of um, aspects of Christian doctrine, on mission, on a range of things, those were not the the spaces really where you could raise these deeper questions uh, of, 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 of real um, difference. People were reticent to do that. Um, one of the opportunities we had at Cranmer was um, some students got together and had structured conversations uh, about subject topics that we knew there was profound disagreement uh, within the community about. And that was um, as a group. Um, learning uh, rules that we would respect um, in the space, um, drawing on um, ways of these approaches um, from different forms of, say, conflict transformation or um, different traditions of peacemaking. Prama offer in, in a residential context. So that's that's about um, students learning ways of talking to each other and broaching difficult subjects, sensitive subjects that are deeply felt and um, finding the space uh, and acknowledging where someone else is coming from um, and giving the space to really listen. So that happened at the initiative of, of the ordinands themselves. I mean, do you think theological colleges should do more to encourage that top-down, as it were, for the principal or lecturers to be actively encouraging those kind of environments to be formed where, where that kind of honest disagreement can take place? Uh, well, I would say part of the value of that kind of initiative was that the students came up with it themselves um, because the students felt the importance of it. It, it does change things when um, things come from top down, as you say, um, because authority is perceived in a certain way. And, oh, this is something we ought to do and should do. And the whole range of elements of the formation process in training, uh, there's, I, I noted staff have a real balancing act to do there of how much they insist you do something for your formation and how much it has to come from um, personal choice and the, and the ordinance themselves le learning and realising that this is of value for their future ministry. So I would be cautious about um, how much that could be a, a, a top-down point, but of course it could be encouraged and indeed it was one of the one of the things i suppose that meant that it came to the students attention was that Cranmer, as uh so it's an evangelical college um in the northeast of england which is historically more high church but is also the place that they uh, for ministry um one of the earliest trained women for ministry some of the um first women bishops came there so there's a whole there's there's a range of traditions that are held there a range of almost there's a, a rich heritage there of um, diversity and holding things together. So there was a diverse student group um, coming together to train at the same time at Cranmer. And 
an interesting question is how much um, that is the case at other residential institutions. I'm sure uh, there are um, others where all colleges have a diversity and they might, that diversity may be across um, parts of uh, the familiar Anglican spectrum. One of the privileges I felt, but it was also a challenge, was training somewhere that had such a reach across the spectrum. Um, and that perhaps brought to the fore the need to find those ways of learning good disagreement. So the thing about residential training, is we've inherited um, by accident, perhaps more than intention, uh, residential colleges that largely come from particular traditions um, in the church, particular church parties. So it's somewhere like Westcott at one end of the spectrum or Oak Hill at the other, you, you might get the majority of people agreeing with each other. So perhaps some of these opportunities to disagree well might not arise quite as much. Or is that too simplistic? That probably is a little simplistic, simply because um, there is always a diversity of people, whether, frankly, um, men and women are from different backgrounds, uh, classes, ethnicities and so on. And you and you get that in um, all kinds of residential in institutions. And I'm sure you particularly get it. I know you particularly get it in um, non-residential training. But it's worth remembering the history of this, which is um, in the mid 19th century, the Church of England went through, well, you could call it another process of renewal and reform um, when bishops particularly became animated about how their ordinands were being trained and so set up residential training in their diocese. Um, some were in cathedral towns, some were um, near the bishop's palace. And that was happening in the 1830s, 40s and 50s. So the first residential colleges were diocese based and in some ways had a mix of ordinands. Um, by the late 19th century and the early 20th century, a new kind of residential college was founded, which was much more to almost defend uh, and secure the future of a church party. And almost all the residential colleges that have survived as residential colleges today are from that second round, second generation of colleges um, that are identified with a particular tradition. It's probably only Cudston um, of the residential colleges uh, from the first generation that survive, um, which has the were from that more a bishop founds it for, for his diocese in those days. Uh, the others have become non-residential uh, sites for, for training. And so, as I say, by accident or um, perhaps what happens when you endow a college with uh, in a particular tradition and it can um, survive historic change and so on. Um, is you end up with this emphasis on residential colleges that represent a particular tradition and therefore tend to attract ordinands from that particular tradition. So you're encouraged as an ordinand, or you're encouraged to look at a range. A good DDO will encourage an ordinand to look at a range of colleges um, to see where they um, feel is the right place for them to train. But on the whole, as a general rule, you're more likely to end up training with Anglicans like you. You are uh, with a whole range of Anglicans that um, significantly disagree with you. Now, you may well do that. In fact, you're far more likely to do that in non-residential training. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that uh, it's precisely the non-residential training 
whether that's full-time St. Melitus mixed mode kind of model or non-residential part-time training, you don't necessarily get that same gift of time and space for this learning to disagree well, learning what mutual flourishing might look like. So the question is whether the lecture, the classroom is um, the right place to broach those kinds of deeper disagreements. So in a, in a context where you have the lecture space and you have, say, the common room space where you share over tea and coffee and you get to know your fellow ordinands a bit on that day before you go back to your, your parish for contextual training in the common room. Are you likely to, in, in the brief time that you have, are you likely to get to um, those points of real significant disagreement? Or I think you're more likely, it seems natural, to want to focus on what you agree on. And, and so you're not necessarily, you're wanting to sh um, share the exciting theology you've just, get, you just heard. Uh, you're wanting to talk about um, mission, your experiences in parish and so on. Are you given the opportunity to go further and get to those points of real deep um, disagreement and hear where that um, other person is coming from, really get to know them, really share on that deeper level? Beyond the context of, say, structured conversation, there's also the learning to live as a community and actually learning um, through through fellowship and learning to pray with people you disagree with profoundly. Uh, I want to stress the also the importance of the time and the space for that. All, all training, whether residential or non-residential, of course, has worship built into it, collective worship, common worship, and that's all to the good. The importance of students learning to live and pray and worship together, uh, that is the great privilege of residential training. And I'm wanting to raise that question of whether that time and the space for um, learning what good disagreement is, learning what mutual flourishing is, is that something that is being prioritized? Is that something that is actually going into policy decisions for um, the shaping and forming of future ordained leaders in the church? As dioceses consider um, the tracks they want their ordinance to go on, um, it's fully understandable that they want to emphasize experience with mission uh, in in contextual training. Uh, they want um, good theological training uh, in good institutions. It's this third strand. It's it's quite hard to um, pin down quite what it is, but it's almost those opportunities for ordinands themselves to learn what it means to recognize each other's mutual flourishing at this early stage of their journey into Christian ministry. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer? one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just five pounds. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.